Episode 2, The Arrest. If I went in and he had shaved his head, then I said, Mikhail, you've got a different hairstyle. You know, 2020 hindsight, he was preparing to go to prison, so he had some inkling of this. Mikhail Hartikovsky's arrest by the Kremlin would make international headlines, and it sent a message to any companies that wanted to do business in Russia. Watch your step. Vladimir Putin rose through Russian politics as a progressive, bent on reform. He was working for the mayor in St. Petersburg when Russian Premier Boris Yeltsin tapped him as a deputy. Putin had deep ties to the former KGB and the Russian mafia, but at the time, it looked as if all that was in the past. Yeltsin pretty much accepted Putin as a reformer, so... That's Bruce Missamore, the American businessman who was the former chief financial officer of Yukos. Russia's second biggest oil company at the time. These days, Missamore is retired and owns a winery in northern Arizona. But in the early 2000s, he got to see up close how Vladimir Putin wields power. I'm Lauren Steffi. Welcome to Episode 2 of Putin's Oil Heist, an insider's account of the Yukos affair. Today's episode, The Arrest. In early 2001, Bruce Missamore moved to Moscow from Houston, where he was living at the time, and went to work for Mikhail Hartikovsky at Yukos. Missamore and his wife settled into their new life in Russia's capital. But Russia was emerging. So we looked at it. We, my wife and I went over, and after I had made the initial trip over to talk to them, and we were house hunting, we found an apartment close to the Russian White House. We were in a Stalinist building. It was poured concrete. It was built to last forever and ever. And this was where the Russian elite lived in the Stalinist days and in the Soviet Union party days. These were the party apartments and right across from the Russian White House and the Hotel Ukraina, which uh, is interesting today because, of course, Hotel Ukraina was one of the buildings Stalin built that were named after Soviet states. Uh, we were right across the street from that. So it was quite a challenge to move into someplace like that, but we took Cyrillic lessons, we took Russian lessons, we tried to cope as best we could. By 2003, Yukos was growing rapidly, but Hartikovsky's relationship with Putin began to sour. While Putin had generally favored privatizing Russian oil assets, he was less enamored with the idea that Western companies would own them. He could control Russian companies but not foreign ones. Foreign oil concerns were welcome to expand Russian crude production, provided they agreed to heavy taxes that ensured Russia profited from the oil being pumped. But Hartikovsky's drive to westernize Yukos was something different. Suddenly, foreign investors were buying up shares of Yukos and other Russian companies, which angered many people, particularly in the Russian government. Legislation was passed to curtail foreign investment. This strained Hartikovsky's relationship with Putin. Adding to the growing acrimony was Hartikovsky's rumored presidential ambitions. Increasingly, Putin saw Hartikovsky as a threat, and Hartikovsky saw Putin as a Soviet-era thug whose talks of reform were a charade. Missamore remembers an early conversation he had with Hartikovsky in 2001 about Putin. I asked him one day, I said, well, you know, this guy Putin, it seems like he's heading down the right road. Everything is still reform and 
he seems to be supportive of everything we're doing as well as everything else going on in the Russian economy. And, and Mikhail said, well, it might seem like that, but just be very, very careful because what he's doing, he's biding his time. He's filling the Kremlin with former KGBers and former military types, and he's kicking out the Yeltsin people who are the democracy people. And it's only a matter of time before Putin basically turns and the KGB and the military types are running Russia again, which was very, very prophetic. Despite the growing friction between Hartikovsky and Putin, Yukos continued to expand and work towards its goals of becoming one of the biggest international oil companies. Probably most of late 2002 and early 2003, we were growing so fast and we had such massive cash flow that we were looking to diversify, but particularly also to diversify political risk as well as use our cash portfolio. Well, we were, you know, one of the largest oil companies in the world at that point in time. And so we began a number of discussions with, for instance, Conoco, Philips, Exxon, Chevron, BP, Total, a number of the world's largest oil companies about what kind of a combination we could come up with. Of course, they wanted access to Russian reserves. We wanted access to some of their expertise, although we had a huge amount of expertise, probably better research center, geophysical research center than anybody in the world at that point. Global oil prices were low, and during the 1990s, that had prompted the mergers of some of the biggest Western companies. Exxon bought Mobil, BP bought Amoco and Arco, and Conoco bought Phillips Petroleum. If Yukos wanted to keep growing quickly, it needed to do the same thing. Oil companies can grow by drilling more, which takes time, or they can acquire production that's already been drilled by someone else, which is much faster. That's where Missamore came in. He had, after all, helped lead the merger of Pennzoil and Quaker State in Houston back in the 90s. Actually, at the end of 2002, I engaged a couple investment banks and brought them in. I won't name them at this point, but they were to give me ideas on, you know, the kind of type of combinations that we could engage in with major international oil companies. So I presented that to Haverkowski when I came back after Christmas break in January of 2003, and he said, hold off for just a bit because I'm having some conversations on other combinations that might work. Hartikovsky had his eye on Sibneft, controlled by another Russian oligarch, Roman Abramovich. Sibneft's story was similar to Yukos's in that it, too, grew out of Russia's efforts to privatize oil assets in the post-Soviet era and wound up controlled by an oligarch. Like Yukos, Sibneft had grown rapidly, but it had one key difference that would prove costly. In early 2003, Hartikovsky sought Putin's blessing in acquiring Sibneft. Putin didn't object. The deal would create the world's fourth largest oil company and, most importantly, keep it in Russian hands. Hartikovsky didn't tell Missimore what he was doing until the deal was done. Finally found out about it probably a month later, and he, he basically handed it to me and said, here, finalize this by the 1st of May. So that's what I did, including many sleepless nights to three or four in the morning, finalizing the merger with Sibneft, which we did. And the merger was actually finalized around the 1st of October of 
2003 before Mikhail was arrested. The deal had some benefits for Yukos. And of course, acquiring a Russian company, while not diversifying our political risk, acquired reserves at a very, very low cost, far lower cost than we could have acquired reserves anywhere else in the world. And so from that standpoint, it made sense. But there were drawbacks. Abramovich's company was fairly corrupt. It was going to derail our plans for a New York Stock Exchange offering, which we were well advanced on. There's no way I could have made representations to the NYSE on this fairly large subsidiary of ours. And that's what it was. Sibneft was a subsidiary that I just couldn't have made any of those representations that I needed to make. At the time, U.S. regulators were cracking down on corporate financial disclosures in the wake of the Enron scandal. While Ms. Moore was proud of the governance standards Yukos had adopted, he didn't think the company could vouch for Sibnef's accounting in the same way. The NYSE listing, one of the main goals Yukos had been pursuing since he arrived, was dead. The New York Stock Exchange listing would have been a legitimization of everything that we had been doing, show the world that we could meet the stiff requirements on governance uh, required by the New York Stock Exchange and would have been the first Russian company, major Russian company to do it. And beyond that, that had been one of the goals that had been set up by the directors in 1999. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Putin's Oil Heist. Hartikovsky saw the Sibnef merger as the first step in an even bolder and more contentious plan. He wanted to team up with a top American oil company. He envisioned a partnership similar to the one BP struck with the Russian company TNK several years earlier. But the deal would involve selling a stake in Yukos to the Americans. We were having the shareholder group of Yukos, the largest shareholder group, was having discussions with Exxon and Chevron, both, about international tie-ups. And the chairman of, of Exxon went in to see Mr. Putin and told him, at least Putin heard this, that eventually we're going to take over 51% of Yukos, Exxon. Of course, Mr. Putin didn't like that at all. You know, an American company owning over half of a Russian company Teaming up with an American company would diversify the mounting political risk Kartikovsky faced from the Kremlin because it would align Yukos's interests with those of America. In addition, big companies like Exxon and Chevron had global shareholder bases, making it harder for Putin to assert control over the company or Kartikovsky himself. And it would allow Kartikovsky and his other investors to legitimately move cash out of Russia and invest it abroad. At the same time he was working on the deal, Hartikovsky stepped up his efforts to cultivate members of Russia's parliament, the Duma. Ms. Amor and other Yukos executives were largely unaware of the political alliances their boss was trying to form. Hartikovsky never promised Exxon or Chevron a majority stake, but that's what Exxon's chairman, Lee Raymond, wanted, and he told Putin as much. That scared Mr. Putin to death. But what Yukos really wanted was something much different, even if Raymond thought he could get majority control. Well, that really wasn't the case at all. 
what they wanted was a, what Russia is called a blocking interest, which is 25% plus one share. And that gives you certain legal rights in Russia. Nevertheless, British journalist Martin Sixsmith noted that after the meeting, quote, Putin turned to his aides and said icily, Hartikovsky lied to us again. For Putin, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. The next morning, he called the prosecutor general to discuss the Yukos problem. From that moment, the die was cast. In our little one-on-one sessions, Mikhail said, you know, the strangest thing, I've always been able to get in if I need to talk to Putin, and he never abused it. Been able to get to see him, and all of a sudden, Putin wasn't seeing him anymore. You know, all of a sudden, something had changed in Russia. In October 2003, Hartikovsky's chartered jet landed for a refueling stop in Siberia en route to inspect an oil field. Author Steve Cole describes what happened next. Masked agents in camouflage dress from the FSB, the successor to the KGB, stormed aboard in the darkness, their guns drawn. They grabbed Hartikovsky and placed him under arrest. They flew him to Moscow, where prosecutors charged him with six counts of personal income tax evasion, overseeing corporate tax evasion, document forgery, theft, and other crimes. The prosecutor general's office announced that Hartikovsky's alleged crimes had cost Russia at least $1 billion in lost revenue. Miss Amor was at home on a Saturday morning when he read the news on his laptop computer. In hindsight, Miss Amor is convinced that Hartikovsky knew he was in danger of arrest. He keeps thinking of that meeting in which he noticed Hartikovsky's close-shaven haircut and his thought that the oligarch was preparing for prison. Mikhail is the single smartest guy I've ever worked with in my life. He's brilliant. He's a great strategic thinker. And he saw all this coming. But outside of perhaps Hartikovsky himself, no one at Yukos was prepared for what happened. But none of us were expecting that. Mikhail certainly had some insight. But then when it actually happened, it was totally unexpected. With Hartikovsky's arrest, Putin sent a blunt message to anyone outside or inside of Russia about control of the country's oil and gas resources. He then, by setting the example of Mikhail, could control all the rest of the oil companies by saying, this is going to happen to you, too. The would-be reformer had revealed his true nature. There would be no Western-style capitalism in Russia. Vladimir Putin intended to keep the country's economic cash cow under close government control. The commanding heights of the economy in Russia are oil, gas, and minerals, and he eventually assumed control one way or another of all of that. Be sure to tune in to our next episode, The Theft of Yukos. And we got together on Sunday at one of the management committee members' houses and talked about how we were going to run the company going forward without Mikhail. I'm Lauren Steffi. Join us next time for episode three of Putin's Oil Heist. <laughs>